Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. John and Mary Patton were pioneering Scottish missionaries in the middle of the 19th century. In 1858, they made the long journey from Scotland to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. They were excited. They were going to take the good news about Jesus to an unreached people group, a people who'd never heard about Jesus. And these people actually were cannibals. Three months after their arrival, so they'd only been there three months, a son was born and they named him Peter. But just 19 days after giving birth, Mary died from tropical fever. She was soon followed to the grave by the newborn Peter, who died at just 36 days old. John Patton dug the two graves with his own hands. He buried his wife and his son in short succession. And he buried them by the house that he had built. And for a while he had to sleep on the graves for fear that the cannibals would come and dig up the bodies to eat them. And he later wrote these words. Stunned by that dreadful loss in entering upon this field of labour to which the Lord himself had led me, my reason seemed for a time almost to give way. Nearly went crazy. The ever-merciful Lord sustained me. And that spot, that grave, became my sacred and much-frequented shrine during all the following months and years when I laboured on for the salvation of the islanders amidst the difficulties, dangers and deaths. But for Jesus and the fellowship he vouchsafed to me there, I must have gone mad and died beside the lonely grave. Say that again. But for Jesus and the fellowship he vouchsafed to me there, I would have gone mad and died beside the lonely grave. You see, John G. Patton had an experience of the Christian life that could sustain him through that level of loss and grief. He had a biblical vision of suffering. And he had a present experience of the presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit that kept him. I sometimes wonder how I would have fared in similar circumstances. But here's what the story tells me. It is absolutely essential that we Christians understand suffering and that we understand glory if we're going to walk in the new way of life to which God has called us. It's essential that we understand suffering and glory. Well, why is this? Because suffering is inevitable and therefore we need a faith that knows how to suffer. And as I've been a Christian for a number of years now, I've observed there are two errors that Christians often fall into in the matter of suffering. They're opposite reactions to it, but they're both an overreaction and they're both mistakes and they lead to disaster. On the one hand is a, is a, a theology that can be described as health and wealth. It's a, a, a theology, a vision of truth that says God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be happy all the time. God, in fact, wants you to be healthy all the time. You shouldn't be sick. Jesus came to end all that, didn't he? He came to end pain and sickness and sorrow. Jesus came to make us well. He took our griefs. He took our sicknesses upon himself. So we should be able to claim health in the name of Jesus. Now, these people are absolutely right 
on the principle. They're absolutely right on the principle, but they're absolutely wrong on the timing. It's all a matter of timing. See, our entry into a healthy, supremely healthy and and well-off and affluent and happy life is reserved for the world to come. It's future. It's a future glory. And so to promise people that here and now is to make them a promise, cruelly, that sometimes leaves people stranded on the beachhead of false expectations. It also doesn't give people a faith that will stand in the storms of life. There was an old hymn, it's a shame we never sing it anymore, perhaps because the tune's a bit funny, but it was, the tune was, Does Your Anchor Hold in the Storms of Life? And the chorus went like this, maybe some of you remember it. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock that cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Saviour's love. An anchor. But this kind of theology, health and wealth, doesn't give you a faith that will stand in the storms of life. It doesn't give you an anchor. And it also doesn't give you a Christianity that can be passed on to the next generation. Kids won't be fooled by it. And they walk away disillusioned. Now that's the health and wealth side. But there's an opposite reaction that goes too far the other way. And this could be called a kind of stoic theology. Stoic, not really stoic. Stoicism was Greek. But the the approach to life is this. Well, we all know we're going to suffer. So we may as well just put on a stiff upper lip, grin and bear it. Now this is more tempting for some of us who are in the evangelical world. But let's be careful not to throw stones. People who take this kind of stoic view of suffering, well, we're just going to grin and bear it, are in danger of doubting God's promises, having little expectation of God to do anything. They can lack enthusiasm, and it can lead them into a kind of pessimistic view of the world to forget God's promises, even to not really believing in him. So we don't want to be swinging from one pendulum, health and wealth, to stoicism. We want a biblical middle ground so that we know how to suffer biblically because suffering will come. If it's not already here, it's near the door. Perhaps you've uh, got struggles with health. And there's nothing like that, is there? To just undermine everything else that you're thinking about and doing. You know, when you're really ill, as if you can't think about anything else. Perhaps you've got struggles with disability. The UN did a survey, I think it was last year or the year before, they found that, they, in, according to their research, that more than one billion people in the world have some form of disability. More than one billion. We're a little bit sheltered from this in the Western world. Because we've so, got so much advantage through medicine and treatments, but more than one billion people have disability. And there's a, there's a suffering that people walk with day by day, hour by hour. Perhaps there are issues to do with family or bereavement, grief. Things to do with children, or miscarriage, infertility. Things to do with singleness that you don't desire, or a marriage that hasn't worked out as you thought it would. Suffering to do with work or the lack of work. Suffering to do with money. For many people, there are specific sufferings that come just because they're Christians. Their society, their family, pressure. They suffer estrangement and even persecution. And the list goes on. Now it's true, of course, that we Western Christians have a remarkably easy life compared to the rest of the world. We have to confess this. We have to uh, thank God that we've been given great privileges. We are rich compared to most of the rest of the world. 
But that doesn't mean we don't suffer. Man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. And we first world Christians have a peculiar problem. Here it is. In our first world cultures, we've been brought up to believe that we have a right not to suffer. We've been brought up to believe that we have a right not to suffer. And therefore, we are not remotely ready for the storm. So in other words, if you're a first world Christian, if you're born in the West, your culture has given you no resources to deal with suffering because your culture told you that it was your right not to suffer and therefore you are naked in the storm. And this is why I think, one of the reasons why younger people buckle and fold under ordinary life pressures that previous generations used to welcome and expect. I'm not condemning us, I'm just pointing out that your culture has given you no resources to deal with suffering. And we need to know, therefore, how to, how to handle suffer biblically, because it will come if it's not already here. We need to be ready for it. A few weeks ago, I spent uh, three or four days on the Isle of Wight, which is a lovely little island just off the south coast of England. A friend of mine was turning 50, and we spent some days there, and as we were walking around the coastline, we saw the, the lifeboat station which um, was there up on the coast and it was, there was a long wooden pier and at the end was the lifeboat station so we walked up and it was open to the public and there's this wonderful British institution called the RNLI the Royal what's the name stand for? National Lifeboat Institution or something like that and there was this lifeboat this is the thing about it it was there you could come and walk up around it it was poised on top of a ramp and there, in front of it, were some doors that would open as quickly as it was called upon. And the lifeboat was ready to zoom out, straight out around into the sea at any moment. And it was actually um, clean as a, as a pin and completely ready to go. It was absolutely ready for the storms, absolutely ready for the shipwrecks when they came. So we need to get ready as Christians because the resources that our culture lacks, the Bible has got in spades. The Apostle Paul knew a lot about suffering. He'd experienced it firsthand. He reflected on it deeply. And here in our passage, if you look with me at verse 18, you see what he says. His, his mature, considered reflection is this. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This verb, consider, means a firm conviction reached by rational thought on the basis of the gospel. So here's the principle, and I think Lake is going to bring it up on the screen here. Present sufferings don't even come close to the future glory. Oops, typed it in wrong. Present sufferings, I'll go for what's on the, on the screen, don't even compare to the future glory. So let's learn to groan, wait and pray. And that is the whole sermon today, so you've got it all in front of you. This whole chapter is concerned with the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the spirit of life. He brings life to Christians by liberating them and concentrating their mind and helping them to kill their sin. He's the spirit of adoption. He brings deep assurance and he brings transformation by showing us in our heart a deep sense that we're safe and secure because we're adopted by God. And here today we find out that he is the spirit of glory. He impresses on our hearts a hope of glory. 
He helps us in our weakness by praying for us. And he prays with us. And he gives us hope and patience in this groaning, challenging, suffering world era. This is what the Holy Spirit does. Present sufferings don't even compare to the future glory. So groan, wait and pray. My first point, present sufferings. Have a look with me again at our text. Look at verse 20. uh, Or rather verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now this is really interesting. It says here that God's creation will suffer in the present time. And then it says that God's children will suffer in the present time. God's creation. So we have here this picture of the the subhuman world. The creatures, animals, birds, fish, the actual physical world that we live in, the cosmos, the stars, the, the universe. All of this is actually in some way, Paul says, suffering. Because of humanity's fall. Now, this is interesting because it goes against what we're often told in our culture. You remember that Disney film with the song, The Circle of Life? The Circle of Life. What was that? The Lion King or something? And it's all about the circle of life. Hey, you know, you're born. You live a bit. You start to go off the boil. You go downhill. Then you die. It's the circle of life. And maybe you had a few kids along the way. Now, according to the Bible, that is not a fun vision of the universe. Just ask the badger lying dead at the side of the road on the M56. Hey, how do you feel about the circle of life? That badger wishing he was still alive. Just ask the dodo. You can't ask the dodo, it's extinct. There's a sense that the world is out of joint. Things decay. They fall apart. They rot. They get sick. They lose their energy. It's as if the batteries are running down all the time. There's an endless cycle. Conception, birth, life, decay, death, decomposition. What is the point of it? Now, according to the Bible, this isn't natural and good. It's because of the curse. Right back at the beginning of the Bible, on page two or three, you will find that God created a world of beauty and abundance and peace, goodness. A world we all want. And that humanity disobeyed him and turned their backs on him. And as a result, God's judgment fell on the world. Fell on the creation, not just on human beings. So the creation, it says here, is suffering. It's suffering, it's frustrated, it's not reaching its its purposes, it's in bondage to decay, things tend to fall apart, and it's actually, it says, in the pains of childbirth. Now, I've never given birth, but I understand it's rather uncomfortable. I remember seeing the look on my wife's face as she experienced the pains of childbirth for the very first time, and she was holding my hand, and I thought that she was going to break every bone in my hand at one point. She squeezed it so hard and gave me this look. It was kind of like this. Oh, 
give us some gas. The pains of childbirth. But there's at least there's some hope in that image. That something good's going to come out. So you sense here there's present sufferings on God's creation. But not just God's creation. God's children suffer. Have a look with me again. Verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Evelyn Waugh was one of the great uh, English novelists of the 20th century. He wrote some wonderful books. Brideshead Revisited, a number of other books. And he, in his memoirs, he talks about his father, who was a literary man and the editor of a literary journal. And his father, in uh, middle age and in later life, had put on a lot of weight. And he was a, he was a very large, fat man. And apparently, Evelyn Waugh's father, whenever he caught sight of himself in the mirror in the house, which he tried to avoid, he would stop where he was and would look at himself and would say, Oh, horrors! <laughs> at the sight of his own reflection, Horrors! Horrors! Well, I wonder if you ever feel like that. Catch sight of yourself in the mirror. Some of you are still in the prime of life, of course. But we have got, to use an old translation, bodies of humiliation. Bodies of humiliation. I've been led to believe that after the age of 60, the majority of my muscle, mass, and density will wither away. No matter how much I work out. I was asking Chris, a friend of ours at the church here, who's maybe about 60, about his experience. And Chris is as fit as a fiddle and he cycles everywhere. He cycles hundreds of miles a month to work. And he said, Yeah, even Chris, who's, who's the fittest 60 year old I've ever met, yeah, I can feel myself slowing down. I can feel myself slowing down. And this is the reality. The day you were born was one of the last days of your life. The day you were born was one of the last days of your life. We're like grass, the Bible says. We're like the desert flowers. We grow up today. We have our moment in the sun. The wind blows on us and we're gone. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses thousand years, O Lord, in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep people away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is withered. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. How quickly we pass. 70 years, 80 years if we've got the strength, and then we're gone. And I'm not just talking about bodies fitness here, but the whole era that we live in, the, the era of sickness and suffering and sin and shame. The Bible says that God's creation and God's children will suffer in the now time. So don't fall for any uh, theology, I beg you, that tells you that you shouldn't suffer here and now. It will, it will betray you. Present sufferings. I know some of you are feeling that more keenly than others. Present sufferings. Particularly keen if it's, your, if it's your child. Present sufferings. But, Paul says, those sufferings don't even compare to the future glory. This is his mature reflection. I, I consider this, he says, those sufferings don't even compare to the future glory. Have, have a look with me here. Verse 19. The creation waits 
in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. He's using language almost then, making a creation, like making it into a person, personifying it. He says, the whole of creation is waiting. It's on tiptoes. It's peering. Waiting for the glory of God's people to be revealed. So you've got to think, meerkats. You know meerkats? Waiting. Tense. Expectation. When is the glory going to be revealed? Please. God's creation. And with all this talk about frustration, did you notice there was also a note of hope? That yes, there's bondage to decay, but the creation will be liberated. Yes, there's struggling and suffering, but there will be freedom and glory. Yes, there's the pains of childbirth, but it's the pains of childbirth, which means there's hope in the morning of a new life. So what is this new world order going to look like that the Bible promises? What is this new creation, this future glory? Well, it would be quite unwise of us to speculate and to try and um, piece together some sort of picture of the future. I think that would, we could leave ourselves looking rather ridiculous. Here are some of the lang- language of the Bible writers, though. Jesus talked about the new birth of the world at his second coming. Idea of a new birth. Peter talked about the restoration of all things. Things being put to rights. The Apostle Paul here speaks of liberation and somewhere else of the reconciliation of all things. Things that were apart and hostile and at war being brought back together in harmony. And John, the the writer of Revelation, says there will be a new heavens and a new earth in which God will dwell with his people. And from which all sorrow and separation, pain and death will have gone. Now, I've got a very homely example of what this could sort of be like. It's the West Didsbury Primary School. West Didsbury Primary School on Central Road, just off uh, Wilmsley Road. If you go down uh, past Withington, you'll, you'll find the Central Road. And there is a, a brand new school, purpose-built school, uh, all mod cons. But this school looked completely different five years ago. Five years ago, it was, an, it was, it was a school, and it was... Um, serving a community of children, it was doing its job, but it was a run-down, tired, awful-looking place. And then for a while, in fact, the school got closed down, and it was uncertain what was going to happen with the site, so it fell to rack and ruin. And then it was decided it was going to be a new free school, Church of England school, and so what did they do? The builders came in, and for a while it looked even worse. I mean, it was just a tip, building site, skips full of rubbish, Diggers, guys standing around smoking, you know, that kind of building site. And then I didn't see it for a while. And then I went down that road yesterday. And what did I see? A brand new, beautiful school where hundreds of children will be educated and see their lives flourish. Now, what has happened? Is it the same school that it was? No, it's definitely new. But it is still a school. It's on the same site. It's continuous with what was before, but it's so much better. There's a continuity with what went before, and a massive discontinuity. There was a phase where it looked absolutely awful, and 
now it's a phase where it looks like it's a flourishing establishment. You see, there's this kind of continuity and discontinuity between the old world and the old era and the new one that has come. Now, that is just a little microcosm of what the Bible depicts as the future, that God, who loves his creation and loves his world, won't just burn it up and scrap it. He will make it new. He will restore it. And it will be so much greater than it was in the first place. God's creation waits for future glory. And it's waiting for humanity's glory to be revealed. Because the subhuman creation, the world of things and plants and animals, was swept along and cursed with the, the curse of Adam and Eve in Genesis. So now it will be swept along and transformed when humanity's glory is revealed. Have a look with me. Verse 23. It says this. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. There's a promise that we, we ourselves, who trust in Jesus Christ, will have our bodies redeemed, made new, and rescued and glorified. We will be made like the glorious one, Jesus himself. C.S. Lewis once preached a sermon called The Weight of Glory and reflected on this reality. He said, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship If you could see your own glorified self, you would be strongly tempted to worship. And he concluded, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Now this is pretty radical, isn't it? This, I think, is pushing the the edge of the Bible's uh, radical message. We can kind of believe in Jesus and miracles and forgiveness of sins but do we really believe in a whole new world order resurrection from the dead life without end the world to come glory he says it's the thing that will keep us going in present sufferings so radical but consider this Jesus Christ who as you know was killed on a cruel Roman cross breathed his last His body was checked by professional soldiers and stabbed to check that he'd already died. His body was taken down from the cross and lifeless, laid in a tomb. The stone was rolled across it and on the third day, the stone was was rolled back and he was gone. And he was physically, literally raised from the dead. But the body that he then had was not exactly the same as the one he'd had before. It was him, people could recognise him, and it was physical. He could eat things, he could eat some fish, and he could be touched, people could hug him. He he was physically him, and it was recognisably him, but it also was a different kind of body. It was a body that would never die again. So there's the resurrection power of God at work in Jesus Christ, who the Bible says is the first one of many brothers and sisters the first fruits, like the beginning of a harvest. A full harvest is yet to come. So because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, literally and physically, in a glorious new body, the Bible promises that those who follow him, everybody in him, 
we'll also raise with him one day in his glorious new creation. That's our hope of the future. It's not a hope of a disembodied existence in the clouds. It's not a hope of some kind of spiritual force. It's a physical, glorious reality. And consider this. When Jesus had finished his time on earth, he ascended. He ascended. He went up into heaven and the, the every, all those who were with him watched him as he went. Now what that means is that Jesus has taken his body with him. He hasn't just sort of finished his time in, in the body and gone off and worked on plan B. Jesus Christ remains embodied. God himself remains one of us. That is our hope for a future glorious new body. Present sufferings don't even compare to the future glory. They don't even compare to the future glory. So what do we do about that? We have to learn to groan, to wait, and pray. Have a look with me again at verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We groan inwardly. I think sometimes we Christians think that we're supposed to grin all the time. We're supposed to be happy. Because I'm a Christian and I've got joy, joy, joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. I'm always supposed to be happy. Even when I'm not. I've got a smile on. I'm crying inside. According to this, we groan inwardly. We should know how to groan. To grieve, to sorrow, to weep. This is a real response to a broken world. Not hopeless, but really responsive. And longing, oh Lord, will you come back again and put things to rights. But with our groaning, it's not hopeless, pessimistic groaning. It's also eager, expectant, waiting. We wait eagerly for our adoption. There's an eagerness here. There's a straining. There's a looking forward. We're not fatalistic. We're full of hope. We're longing. Lord, would you come back? And so then, verse 26, we learn how to pray. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Last year, my wife and I had a, a challenging few months. We, one of our children needed a lot of help at school and that help was only available by applying to the city council and uh, we put in our application and it was flatly rejected. They declined even to assess the needs of the, one of our children. And we were very cast down, we were very worried for him. So we uh, phoned a few friends and tried to get some help and decided we would, we would reapply. And as we were doing that, somebody said, oh, you should speak to this, this neighbour of mine, he could help you. And we got in touch with the neighbour and we found out that this man had a son with cerebral palsy. And he'd been through the same process. And he knew all about how to apply and how to get help from the council. And he said, it's a very difficult process. It's, it, it's very complex. And you have to argue your case. You've got to fight your case. You've got to get expert witness and expert testimonies. You've got to build, a, effectively assemble a dossier 
of reasons why your child needs help. He said, you're going to have to spend a lot of time doing it. But then he said this, I will help you. I will help you. And then I discovered that this man is a partner in a, in a personal liability law firm. Now, I would never want to be sued by somebody like that, but I liked having him on our team. A partner in a personal liability law firm, the most aggressive, hostile, demanding kind of law. So he took our little statement that we'd written and he said, I'll have a look at it for you. And our two-page parental statement turned into a six-piece, devastating piece of legal critique demonstrating why, in no so uncertain terms, the council ought to give us help. And I realised at the time that the man had sent it to us, it was one in the morning, he'd been up, late, working for us, for free, just because he, he felt our pain and wanted to help us. Now, there's a little picture of what the Bible says the Holy Spirit does for us. He helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, we're so ignorant. But he intercedes for us. He's there in our heart, and he's there communicating to God on our behalf. He's on your team. He's the best litigator you could ever have. He's making a case for you. He's crying out for you and helping you to pray so that you bring your present sufferings to the Lord God in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he changes your perspective on your life. He changes your perspective on your future. And he helps you to walk with Jesus day by day. So the Bible's message is not what we probably want to hear, but this is the reality. The way to glory is through suffering. The way to glory is through suffering. We don't just walk in there. We get to, get to, to see Jesus in his glory by sharing some of his sufferings here in this world. And this is what the Bible says about Jesus. I'll close with these words. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's all you need to do, friends. If you're suffering at the moment or if suffering comes, is to consider him. Fix your eyes on him. He endured such opposition so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And may God bless you as you seek to walk with him this week, Christian friends, and seek to, to, to live in the light of the spirit of glory who promises you this future and will hold your hand right now in the present. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.